You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ed Lazinski, CEO of Zype. Ed, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Happy to be here. Yeah, glad we got to do this. So you traveled all the way out from New York. You're here for a conference, so I'm glad we were able to squeeze in some time to sit down and chat. Yeah, absolutely. Really glad to be here with you today. I was just telling you out in the hallway, I, when I come to LA, I try to pack in a ton of meetings because, you know, when you're out here, there's always a lot going on. We have a lot of customers. There's always mm-hmm. conferences going on, but it's really nice to kind of break out of that and just sit down and have a nice chat with someone. So Very cool. Yeah. And you're from New York originally? Uh, from the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. Actually, born and raised in New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. And, uh... Still live there today. Uh, early in my career, I lived in London. I lived in the West Coast for a little while. I did lots of different things back and forth, but found my way back to the East Coast and uh, raised my family there. Very good. Yeah. So let's talk about your early career. What made you, you know, choose a career in technology, digital media? Yes, I, my number one kind of influence, inspiration was my father. He worked at Hewlett Packard. So when I was born, I was kind of raised into this like geek family. Um, my dad had a uh, IBM PCXT sitting in the living room. We, uh, you know, had basic books sitting around the house and I learned how to code kind of on my own. This is before internet, right? You couldn't go on there and take a tutorial. There was no Udemy courses at the time. And I kind of really fell in love with it. I love the culture of kind of hacking at things, getting on the command line, figuring things out. That's sort of, uh, that spirit, I think I still have it. I think it's really important to kind of maintain like that kind of hacker mentality. But that really inspired me to sort of have a career in technology. I kind of always knew I'd be doing something related to technology. I, you know, I was fortunate in that way. Like as, as young as like nine or 10 years old, I kind of knew I'd be doing something here. So um, that was a really interesting time. And the fact that this was like kind of pre-internet, bulletin board systems were around. You know, people were making like phone boxes and this is when the pay phones were going on. This is in like the, you know, I grew up in a child of the 80s. And so, and there wasn't a lot of rules, right? You can play around with things. You can figure things out. You can't really get in a lot of trouble at this time because no one really knew what was going on and the impact wasn't really a big deal. So it was kind of a fun time to kind of grow up in technology. That's great. And what were some of the early projects or early jobs that you had in tech? Yeah, so my first job was for an investment bank in New York, Solomon Brothers, who wound up getting bought and consolidated and all that Wall Street stuff. But I was a Perl programmer building like their earliest like internal and external websites. So it was kind of early internet for them. They had some like agency that built their website, but they their business people started realizing they need to share information internally and externally. So I was building like banking apps, you know, on the web for these banks. And it was a funny time because I was wearing a suit every day to go program. I literally sat at a desk with a full suit on because that was a dress code then. And, that, and Wall Street's completely changed. But it was a really interesting time. It was uh, a great environment. The tech people were kind of seen as like these like kind of magical beings that sat there and do, did this magical stuff. And the bankers did their thing. And, and they treated us really well. But I wound up uh, not really wanting to wear a suit every day. You know, it kind of, you know, at the point, I was getting to the point where like the dot-com boom was starting to happen. So it was like 99, 2000. And I had friends who were moved, you know, going into these like hyper growth companies and 
you know, rolling around the office in razor scooters every day. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. So I got a job offer to work at a digital agency. It was part of McCann Erickson. And um, it was a really interesting opportunity. The company was called Zentropy. Uh, it was actually an LA based company that did a lot of like media and entertainment digital work and then a New York based company that did a lot of sort of like the banking and Bank of America and Coca-Cola type stuff and they merged and created this digital agency. It was kind of like a razor fist or something like that and um, I got to you know be a director of technology there and that's when I took off the suit. I started kind of figuring out a little bit about creative. I started dabbling in how like video, this is early video, like uh, this is like my first kind of foray into video, early web video, early mobile video. Uh, and you know, at the time, like, you know, these things were interesting. I mean, this is the time of like, you know, Mark Cuban and like broad, you know, the broadband.com. Yeah. Radio on the internet. Yeah, uh-huh. the internet, all that kind of stuff. And the quality wasn't there. The bandwidth was like really expensive and kind of terrible. And the devices weren't really that good, but there was something there and there was an inspiration there and kind of say like, this is kind of what I really wanted to do. I love this like, idea of the multimedia. I love the idea of like sharing content that meant something to people. And so there I kind of learned that I kind of wanted to be in some sort of like video or multimedia kind of place. And it was really fortunate. There was, like, there was a salesperson there at, at McKenna Erickson. And again, I was sort of more in the back office. I was director of technology, I had a team, but he brought me into a pitch. And um, he's like, hey, come out to this pitch with us. Help us out. There's going to be a lot of tech people in the room. And I went to this pitch. And uh, so I kind of, one of my first times being like a sales meeting where like I was part of the team selling. I wasn't just kind of like listening. And we nailed it. And part of it is because he gave me this opportunity to kind of defend the company's technology against like the dude in the room who wanted to like, you know, poke holes. Like a lot of tech people do. They go across the table and they like to beat each other up over, you know, arcane technology. Oh, that yeah. No one else understands. <laughs> Have you been there? I've been in a number of those meetings. And I helped them, you know, and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. And he said to me, you know, you should kind of probably be more like in sales or kind of front end kind of thing. You are probably be pretty good at that. And so I thought about that and that kind of stuck with me. And that's how I, that's why I'm not like a full-time engineer right now, probably. I kind of realized, you know, maybe I can do something else. So, you know, that's kind of the start of that kind of journey for me to kind of wind up being like a CEO of a company. Amazing. And you took your first entrepreneurial leap in 2001, launching LTech, which yeah. was initially a consulting firm, but kind of later evolved into a B2B platform. So, yeah. So what happened was the dot-com bust happened, right? I was in like my early mid-20s and a lot of people lost their job in New York, in particular. And at this time, the world was kind of New York for me. And for a lot of people, there was a San Francisco Bay Area dot com culture and there was New York. There wasn't all this other stuff going on. And I laid off my team and then I got laid off. <laughs> it was one of those situations. The NASDAQ crashed, the ad market like collapsed and literally like 9-11 happened, right? So like all this stuff happened at once and uh, they folded that company back into McCann Erickson, kind of one of their other corporate entities. And it, it was interesting, my first time getting laid off, you know, so I was like, well, this is weird, you know, like I just, at the time, everything was like rainbows and unicorns, right? Like everyone's getting jobs and you're, you're bouncing around, checking things out, you're building cool things. There's this kind of culture of like, you know, youth and programmers are like really like important and we're gonna, you know, do an awesome job together building this new internet and all of a sudden it stopped. And, uh, I bought a book from Nolo Press called like starting your own consulting business at Barnes and Noble in the store. And it was like 20 bucks and it came with a CD-ROM with a bunch <laughs> of legal documents on it, like how to start a business. That's so amazing. I, I incorporated a business and I did all this stuff. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to do something next, I don't, really, I don't know if I want to go work for another company that's going to lay me off. I didn't want to go back to Wall Street. 
I wanted to stay in digital. And uh, McCann and Erickson, uh, they had a bunch of projects to get done. And they called me up, hey, can you help us? I said, yeah, I just started a company, actually. Would you be okay if I had my company do this? And I gathered some friends who were also developers. I said, hey, guys, you want to start something here? And I'll be like the PM slash sales guy. And you guys will do the development work. And, and that's what we did. We started LTech that way. And it was pretty cool. And, and we grew it. And uh, I started with kind of like just building websites and there was no mobile apps at this time. It's like web work was the work to do. And uh, there's this little company called Google in New York that had a business unit called Google Enterprise. And it was probably like 20 people at the time. It's now G Suite and Google Apps and that entire business. But I bought a search appliance from them. Google used to sell servers. They would sit in a data center, these yellow boxes. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they would basically sell their search technology to businesses to build your own search engines, right? So. If, for example, one of our customers was PC Magazine. So if PC Magazine wanted to have a review search engine, they could buy a Google search appliance and integrate it into their website. So I was doing some work for a client and uh, bought a search appliance and integrated it. And Google, someone at Google found this use case and said, hey, you guys know how to use this thing? We don't. <laughs> you know, because they kind of, it was a black, it was really like a yellow box. Like they didn't do a lot of integration around it. Like we have a bunch of customers that want to build on top of Google search appliance. Would you want to come in and consult on this? And you know, sell services on top of it. Absolutely. So got involved with Google, that turned into a relationship with the Google Apps ecosystem, which is now called G Suite. Built a bunch of products there. We wound up working with a lot of really cool companies building these integrations between Google Apps and like the rest of the world, these SaaS applications. And uh, built that company up, was really successful, was one of the earliest sort of cloud enablement products companies out there. I learned how to build a SaaS business there. I learned how to hire more people. I learned how to, uh, I did learn how to raise money there. We bootstrapped the entire thing. I Good for you. I it on my own. And uh, it was really successful. And, and that company kind of still exists. Got bought by a privately held services company, a you know, $100 million plus revenue company. Part of it got spun out into another company that still exists today. Part of the technology got spun out to another one. So it, like, Parts of it are still around, which I'm really proud of. I think, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but as someone who builds products and technology, one of the things that inspires me or gets me really excited is when other people are using my stuff. And the longer they're using it, the more excited and happy I am. You know, I have a, an application I wrote at Credit Suisse that I heard from a guy who's still around there. It's like, it's still in use somewhere. I, I, even if it's a tiny business to business app, it's cool to know like something you built or wrote or had a part in, it's like still being used. And with Zype, what's really exciting about is now we're working on things that like millions of people use. And that is super exciting. Yeah. Take out the excitement of growing a team and raising revenues up and growth and all that kind of stuff. Just the fact that people are using this stuff and it's impacting people and you're part of a bigger story, I think is like really important. Yeah, that's why we do it, right? So have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur or just kind of right place, right time, all these factors came together to inspire you to, to start a business? Yeah, I don't, I didn't always consider myself an entrepreneur because I didn't think of it in that, through that lens, you know? I, th I always was sort of like a lemonade stand kid. I always was, you know, trying to hustle, you know? And, and I was out there doing all sorts of different things, trading baseball cards and coins and stamps and, you know, trading wares on the internet, on BBSs and game, you know, whatever, like any kind of currency, right? Like I was interested in like trading things and selling things and stuff like that. But I didn't think of it as entrepreneurial because that word didn't even have meaning for me. You know, I didn't, you know, at the time, I think a lot of folks that kind of grew up in my age, I was born in the late seventies. You know, there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurial support, you know, like Wired Magazine was the first magazine I read that even talked about this stuff as a thing that like you could do on your own. There were like big companies and they were like, Pizza parlors. There, there was really nothing in between, at least, you know. 
kind of where I or kind of where I saw things. So it was only until later that I realized, yeah, this is I'm someone who should be starting things. And you know, part of that journey for me, you know, after Altec, I sold the company. Uh, I went to go work for a company called DataPipe, and one of the reasons I went there is that they weren't a startup; they were a growth stage company. Is that I had a chance to be a general manager of a business unit, so be entrepreneurial, but in a bigger company and learn from others too. So I got to learn a lot there. I got to learn what it's like to manage a company at scale. I got to learn what it's like to deal with like finance and mergers and acquisitions and corporate development, expanding products overseas. And so I think it's important for entrepreneurs, like you know, to not just work for yourself your entire career. I mean, it's good to get experience somewhere. I think that was a really key thing for me. And, and Databyte was really cool because they were like a, a managed services like a kind of hosting company, kind of like a rack space. And they brought me in to build their cloud services business. And we built it, we grew it really fast. They wound up selling the company to Rackspace last year for a lot of money, like a billion dollar plus kind of valuation from what I've heard. So it was cool to be part of that and be part of taking a company and turning it into something else. And without, you know, in other words, you don't need to be working for yourself necessarily be an entrepreneur or have an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. We think a lot about, you know, there's a big difference between zero to one, one to 10, 10 plus, right? And so it's great to exercise all of those skill sets and to kind of develop uh, the attributes that you need to be successful in each stage of a growing company. Yeah, I agree. I think the hardest thing for me is I had experience in these larger companies earlier in my career, big Wall Street banks and then agencies. And then I went to like start something very small from zero dollars to like, you know, between a one and a 10 kind of thing. And then... Went to another company that was like 100 to 500 kind of stuff. And I never had done the thing where it was like zero to one, one to five, five to 10, like on my own with financing. And that was like for me and it is like for me. It's like learning those things. And like, thankfully, I think we're behind a lot of that early stuff, that which is, I'm sure, you know, like super hard, right? Like the starting a software company that's selling a product on a software as a service unit economic basis. It sounds attractive and everyone loves evaluations, but it's really, really hard. And it's not only like attracting capital and building the right team and marketing your product correctly. There's a lot of things that can go wrong and do go wrong as you're building it. And so the, the, you need a really uh, thick skin. And I think the skills needed to you know, build that zero to one, like one to 10, are, there's, they're different companies. So, you know, thankfully, I think with Zype and we've grown and we've had some, we have some great customers that are doing really interesting things in video are helping us propel our growth. We're actually, I'm getting back to that point where I had more experience, you know? So now I have this experience now in, in you know, raising seed capital and doing the series A and building a company and building a team from scratch with VC money, and which is a whole kind of hamster wheel. And you know, it's, it's not easy. I love my VCs, they're great guys uh, and gals, but it's hard. That's a full-time um, job in and of itself. It's a full-time job. And so those skills, I think, um, a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to who are starting things, starting new things like, you know, I advise them a lot on that kind of stuff, yeah. the dynamics, the sort of the investor whispering. I mean, that that's, if you can have someone help you with that kind of stuff and just give you like kind of faith, like you just have to go and execute, all that stuff will come. And then when you're ready to raise money, just dedicate your time to it and make it your job and then move on. I think that's kind of like the key. And yeah. You can't get too caught up in it, but you do have to do a good job at it. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit more about Zype. What originally inspired you? What what got you fascinated in this problem and wanted to build a business around it? Yeah. So I worked in this early video at McCann Erickson, web video, mobile, which was kind of like on like really kind of lame devices like Blackberries and Nokia phones and kind of like not, you know, the horsepower wasn't there. So I lived, I was really interested in it. I got a chance to work on a project for a company called 4Kids TV, kind of coming out of LTech and based on my relationships in, in digital. 
And 4Kids TV was a Saturday morning cartoon slate company, basically. So they had the rights to air, like in major markets, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Pokemon and all, all Kirby and all these sort of like Japanimation type series. I'm sure you've seen these kind of things. And this is when like Saturday morning cartoons were still a thing, like kind of pre-YouTube, you know, dominance and like that, you know, age group now, you know, I think uh, kids are watching YouTube. And they uh, want to build a video portal. So we wound up building this great video portal with them. And uh, I learned a lot about how to do that. And man, it sucked. You know, like we, had, we had to buy these really expensive video content management systems, which some of them are still out there, who we compete with now, the kind of incumbents now. We had to hire people to build flash video players. We had to pay a ton of money for bandwidth. We had to pay a ton of money for like server space to put the servers in, to run the applications, and really long delivery times. And, and I think we did an awesome job. I said, you know, this is this is really not the way it should be. Like, this has got to be more like the experience that we're starting to see at the time of like these SaaS companies emerging, like the sales forces of the world. And kind of, you know, you're telling me your story and you saw how these things operate in like the frictionful kind of manual way. You're like, wow, now that we understand the supply chain here, we could do a better job. And so I had that notion, but frankly, it wasn't the right time. This was like uh, 2006, 2007. I went out and actually went to like some Ruby on Rails conferences because we built it there. And I pitched like what we did as like a learning thing for other developers. And you know, it just wasn't ready to scale because of that bandwidth expense. So cloud computing wasn't there yet. You just couldn't you know, build these kind of services at scale from nothing. But a few years later, you could. And so I was, you know, uh, Datapipe had sold and I was thinking about my next thing. And you know, I always had this idea around Zype in my mind. And we had bought the domain name for Zype like many moons ago. So I had this awesome domain name. Where does the name come from? My co-founder and I, would, uh, we, we used to buy domain names, you know, any four letter domain name, we would buy. Anything that came up, we'd buy a lot of them. We still have some. And this name Zype came up and I'm like, wow, this is a cool name. You know, it's kind of easy to say, easy to spell. Like sure, you could misspell it, but like it's easy to say, easy to spell, easy to brand. And so we kept it in our pocket. And we're like, one day we'll find a great idea to put this name on. And so that's kind of where, where it came from. There's no really like meaning other than that. It was a great name. And we got out there with it and we were thinking about how do we, you know, build these video products and is it the right time? And the, the, the main kind of spark for me that I said, you know, I'm going to actually dedicate my life to this now and actually go do this, which is really hard to do. And I was like, had a really good job at this other company. I could have stayed there. We had sold the company. I could have stayed there and like all that kind of stuff. But I was, uh, my son, I said, I have three boys and um, they keep me really busy and just being a CEO, but they're also like a really great inspiration. My oldest at the time was maybe four or five or six, something like that. And I saw how he was consuming video. I saw him, my old iPad at the time was probably a new iPad and he was watching Power Rangers on it. And like, I just realized he wasn't using the remote control. He wasn't using cable. And I just really sat with me and I'm like, this is my, my own field research. I talked to all the other parents. Like, do your kids watch like Verizon or Comcast or cable? Like, no, you know, and like, and then I being kind of a hacker, I was always building like these streaming kits. I was like building, taking Xboxes and making them into streaming boxes and kind of like hacking around this stuff. And I really, you know, Roku was coming out with their box. I'm like, you know what? The consumerization of geekdom is like a big force in like what's going on today in general, like internet technology. You know what I mean? Like a lot of these things that are like, people think are super innovative really came from like just geek culture, you know, even like the, like Facebook is like the, the bulletin board. You know, I, I thought, you know, Spotify, you know, before even Napster, there was like this music sharing sites on Usenet and stuff like that. So 
I just kind of knew that like this is gonna get consumerized really quickly, and this cord cutting thing at the time when I was thinking about this, I'm not even sure whoever marketed that term came up with it yet, but this is happening. Yeah, the world has fundamentally changed, right? Yeah. After the iPhone, after social media, the next generation is growing up in a world that's you know completely different yeah. than the one we're used to. Yeah, completely different. And so I said, you know, this is the right time now. I, I had. Learned enough to be dangerous in cloud computing with my experience at LTAC and at DataPipe. I understood how to operate Amazon Web Services like really, really well with a really good team that understood it. So I knew I can scale something quickly with not a lot of cost. And I, would, I built some great products that people liked. So I said, you know, I, I, and I know the space, so like, let's go build something. So, you know, I, this is the right time. So we went out and we found, we built an API first, which is still like kind of the core API. We've of course innovated on it, but we built an API for dealing with uh, managing video players for companies doing online broadcasting on their website, on mobile, things like that. We found a customer, Konami, which is like a Japanese media company, kind of through that relationship on that Japanimation kind of thing that I was talking about before. And they said, yeah, we love it. Let's go do it. And they bought the product. And so I got a customer and, and bootstrapped it, my co-founder and I, with our own money at first. And then realized, you know, this is the kind of thing that needs, you know, a lot of fuel and a lot of gas and a lot of oxygen. And we're, we're sort of the igniters on that. We kind of need those ingredients. And so unlike prior endeavors, I you know was pretty convinced that this was the one that it made sense to go raise you know outside capital. Yeah. So we went out and pursued that. We raised like an angel round, kind of friends and family, but some institutional folks that could help us out. Uh, we went out to South by Southwest and we pitched Zype at the accelerator competition they have there and we won it. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That was cool. Yeah. That was like one of those days where like, it was like fist pumps and all that kind of stuff. Like I went to a party that night and like met Mark Cuban. It was just like this kind of like weird kind the of The surreal, like, yeah. yeah. It was like a Silicon weird, Valley-esque. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And like, you know, oh, in three years, you know, we're going to be on private jets or something like that. No, we never really thought, you know, we, we kind of were always grounded, but like, it was like that one night you're kind of like, we won something that's meaningful. We're kind of like, you know, you know, Uber geeks for a night and uh, it was kind of cool. It did help us, I think, raise our profile at the time and uh, ultimately help us raise seed capital and like get us on our way. And it was a really useful um, experiment for us. It helped me how to learn how to pitch, frankly. I don't know how you feel about this. Like, what do you think? It's hard to pitch. Oh, yeah. Know? What do you think are the biggest mistakes? I know you do a lot of mentoring and advising yeah. of early stage startups. What are some of the, the mistakes you see entrepreneurs make when pitching? I think verboseness, you know, too much. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Art of the Start by Guy Kawasaki. Great book. Uh, and it has like a 30 2010 rule or something like that. Basically, like 10 slides and like 20 seconds or something on a slide, but like 30 point font is the big one, right? Like big, big words. And, uh, you know, short. Get your point across. Don't bury the lead, you know? If you just experience some amazing traction or some proof point or some social proof, put that up front. Like get, get investors or customers' attention on the first slide. You know, these people see these things every single day, you know, and they really don't care unless you grab their attention and, you know, communicate something that really gets them engaged. So I think there's a lot of that. I think the art of the pitch is a really like, it's a learned practice. You know, you have to do it to get good at it. You know, kind of like golf or tennis or any of those things. You, you don't just pick up a racket or something like that and you're not going bored. Like, you have to work really hard at it. I think pitching is like one of those kind of things. You're not going to luck into it. I'm sure some companies do. Um, we all hear about the stories like, oh, one pitch and they raise all this money and they're millionaires. But like, that, that really, it doesn't really happen that much, right? So I think it's really about hard work. And I think being prepared for disappointment. I think you, you know, fail, you learn from failure, right? And, you know, you got to get out there. Do your best, take the criticism, take the feedback, understand it's gonna be a no, 
be prepared to get kicked in the you know what. Right? <laughs> yeah, and, and you just and, keep moving. And keep moving. Yeah. And take it and learn from it. And just iterate, iterate, iterate. It's like software development, right? Agile software development. You're iterating, you're learning, you're testing. You have to do that. You have to have that mindset. And I think you also have to compress your time, I think. I've learned, you know, it's really effective if you can like identify a pipeline of people you want to talk to, whether they're customers, if you want to, you know, sell your product or investors want to raise money is you know, set up a two-week window uh, to do all your research and get all the names lined up, get your meetings set up, and then set up another two-week window to actually go execute and get all that feedback in one place in time and, like, minimize the disruption that's going to be to your business. And if you come out of that process and, like, you don't, you still don't have anything, you're not sure where you're going, then maybe it's not going to work. Maybe you have a lot of information, you go back to your mentors or you're back to your team and you talk about what happened and you get better the next time, you know, but compressing it rather than always fundraising I learned, I think works really well. And a lot of the CEOs and entrepreneurs I talk to are kind of in this like, well, I talked to this guy yesterday or this gal last month. And then I'm talking to this one two weeks from now. Like that doesn't really work. You know, like th there's no urgency on their end because you're not setting any deadlines. And on your end, you're not really showing that you, that you really want to do this. You're kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a passive thing. I think it's an active thing. I think pitching is an active kind of, you know, visceral thing you need to like be engaged in fully. Yeah, 100%. Great advice. Let's talk a little bit more about the problem that you're solving. You know, the OTT space can be a bit daunting. So maybe break it down and give some definitions for the listeners. What does over-the-top video distribution actually mean? Yeah, yeah, great question. So over-the-top video distribution is uh, any kind of video distribution that's not happening through a traditional like, cable or broadcast network. In other words, where the video bits or the video signals don't have to go through the middleman of like the cable company through their set top box to your eyeballs. And that's why it's called over the top because you're going over the top of the set top box. To a lot of people it means sort of like Roku or Apple TV. For us it really means like anything that is not going through the cable company, right? Yeah, so anything web delivered essentially. Yeah, web mm -hmm. delivered, like IP delivered, mm -hmm. mobile, streaming sticks, connected TVs. You know, we're sitting in an office right now with an LG TV that probably has like an operating system that's as powerful as, you know, the computers that launched like the early space shuttles, right? <laughs> so, you know, you have all this power now and all these, you know, kind of almost like convergence of like Internet of Things too. There's really powerful chips everywhere. So now you can sort of distribute content to these things. And you know, audio and video are like you know, really important pieces of content that humans care about, the two of our senses, right? So I think that what's happened really is the cord cutting sort of revolution, really. And it's a real big change in the marketplace. If you do the research, it's accelerating, right? The cable companies are adapting in some ways. Like they're creating their own sort of like OTT app offerings and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the story is people are moving away from these heavy cable bundles that bundle internet and, you know, a bunch of cable channels that you don't watch. And people are moving to more of an app-based economy for video content. I mean, you know... We've been trained by Apple and Google and like you can buy what you want a la carte. You can pay $5 a month or $8 a month for this and that. And you have some really big forces on the technology side that are really pushing this. Apple, Google, Amazon, they're all on the side of, you know, in their own interests of sort of amplification of everything. So at the end of the day, over the top is really a movement around, you know, changing the way consumers, you know, watch and consume video. What Zype solves for that is like we're sort of like the infrastructure to help companies, media companies, e-commerce companies, enterprises that want to engage in over the top to do that in a way that doesn't require them to deal with all this fragmentation. So instead of build, writing software and building plumbing and building content management systems to deal with Roku and then having a development team go build that again for Apple TV and having another team go build that for distribution to like a Sling TV or Twitch, we provide 
a full set of infrastructure that gives you a really easy sort of on-demand way to do that without a lot of uh, heavy upfront costs or investment. And do you envision a world in which a lot of these media and entertainment brands and, and sounds like some individual content publishers and even traditional brands trying to sell a product are creating programming and distributing that over the top on their own? Or do you think that uh, we're going to see more consolidation and uh, just frankly so much competition that there will be a lot of losers and only a few ultimate winners? Yeah, it's a great question. It's sort of the question uh, I get asked a lot. It's like, you know, how many icons are going to be on your TV in five years? Is it just going to be like YouTube, Netflix, and Amazon, and maybe Hulu? Or is there going to be 500 things? Or what, it's gonna, what is it going to be? Like, I don't believe there's going to be just like four winners. I just don't, I don't think there can be. I think there's a lot of forces that prevent that from happening. One is the different marketplaces don't want that, right? So if you're a Google or an Apple or a Roku or an Amazon, it's, it's not in your interest to have, you know, just YouTube dominate everything. Right? So they're gonna continue offering ways for publishers to get their content out and to the consumers in an easy way that makes sense for them. So they're gonna continue having open marketplaces. So I think open marketplaces kind of make allow that to happen. I also think that consumers, you know, wanna watch what they're passionate about. And you know, there's a lot of parts of this country. I mean, you fly over the middle of the country, there's a lot of content out there that is not gonna make it on a YouTube. It doesn't make sense on a Hulu and it's will never be approved on Netflix. And so, you know, outdoor content, political content, all sorts of things that just have no place in those ecosystems. So to say there's only gonna be four icons, you would say like, well, people are gonna stop watching things that matter to them. And I just don't believe that's gonna happen. Yes, there'll be consolidation, but with consolidation, we're also seeing a lot more choice. So it's getting easier and easier for people who own content to get it out. I also think that businesses are starting to think about this. You know, you have like the Dove channel now and the Hallmark channel now and the Red Bull channel now. And I don't think that's going to slow down. I think that you're an influencer marketing, you know, I think the brands are starting to realize that like they're paying for this content. Then why not own the content and therefore why not distribute it or at least have that as part of your mix. So we see a lot of that starting for us. And all the, some of the plumbing is getting like rebuilt right now. So it's not just about entertainment. I mean, we have companies that are distributing sort of training to their employees on the TVs that sit inside their offices. We have people that are doing like live streaming of like corporate events and investor relations. I mean, so like the plumbing for all this, it's not just about, you know, sitting back on a couch and, and watching your you know, favorite you know, football team play or, or, or a talk show. It's also about learning, it's about corporate values, it's about you know communication across, I think, different businesses. So yeah. I mean, all this stuff's kind of getting built out right now, and I don't think it could just be owned by a YouTube or a Netflix. Sure. I think they have their place, and they're awesome, and they're big, and they're great, but there's a place for everybody, I think. So of your customers, how many would you say are distributing content for the purposes of monetization and those who have more of an internal use case? I'd say, you know, right now about 90% is media okay. entertainment. Yeah. Uh, we are starting to see really interesting customers that are doing things to use video for engagement, right? So it's not about making money on the video, it's about making money in their other businesses, right? So like a Crunch Fitness, you know, they sell a gym product. You go to work out in the gym. Well, you also can watch Crunch Live. And so how do they do that? Well, you know, they use, they use Zype and they kind of empower their customers to uh, subscribe to their product and also get, you know, the video content at home. We have companies doing subscription commerce. We have companies doing like the corporate events and things like that. So I see that as a really important uh, movement in that the plumbing that media and entertainment companies have laid is now being used by other use cases outside of it. And that's good for us at the end of the day because those companies, uh, if a media and entertainment company is perplexed by this fragmentation, imagine if you're like in a completely different business and you've never really done video or maybe you've only bought media 
that sits on video and now you want to go distribute it and use it that way. I think, you know, companies like Zyphon have a really important role to play. For those companies that do monetize directly based on the content, do you see a preference toward an AVOD model where it's advertising supported? Is it subscription supported? What are the kind of the key monetization strategies? So key, so AVOD, SVOD, and TVOD are sort of like the three ones that we see the most of. And, you know, AVOD is really for those that have a massive scale. You know, you know, we, we advise customers, like if you're, if you think you can reliably deliver like 6 million video views per month or more, that's not even massive scale. That's like entry level, like mm -hmm. then AVOD is a good option for you. However, there is a offshoot of AVOD, it's more, you know, it's still advertising, but it's more of like in content advertising, branded content. So folks are doing live streams, folks that have direct relationships in a regional market. Let's say you're doing an outdoors channel that it really is, uh, has a lot of sh uh, share of voice in like Nebraska for hunters. You could do really well selling to like the local market there at really high CPMs. I think when we think AVOD, we're thinking programmatic and people are looking for easy solutions. Oh, I plug in this programmatic ad server and I'm gonna make a ton of money. Like, no, like at that level, you need like 6 million impressions or more. SVOD and TVOD are really interesting and they're really growing for us. I think that, you know, the vertical networks, the folks that have like this niche content, and this is like fitness, sports, personalities, faith, these kind of areas of content, the SVOD and TVOD models uh, work really, really well. Yeah, you for have, high engagement, high, niche audiences. And they have, their, they have Twitter, right? They have Facebook. They have their audience fully addressable and engaged. They can do discovery on those platforms. They can do a live stream every week. They can do a free show. They can offer up preview videos. And they can drive them right to their app to go buy on Apple TV for $8 a month. And, and that is a really successful model for those kind of companies. For some of the premium you know, entertainment companies that we're all familiar with, at what point do you think it makes sense for them to launch their own OTT brand versus license content to a Netflix, an Amazon, a Hulu? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, we're out here in LA and we, I meet with a lot of like, you know, sort of like production houses and movie studios and folks that are like in the sort of quote, quote, traditional supply chain of Hollywood, like are in the business of selling content to distributors. And unless they want to build those muscles and build marketing teams and product teams and data teams, even if you're using a product like Zyper and take this seriously, you really need to have like at least one person that you're going to like kind of, Hey, we're going to build this OTT service. If you're not willing to do that, if you don't, and if you don't want to disrupt your current supply chain, you probably don't need to do it right now. You probably continue doing that. But I think there's going to be a point in time where you realize that the Netflix and the Hulu are competing with you. They're producing their own content. They're buying, they're, they're sort of disintermediating you. And I think there's a certain point we're starting to see it where these production companies and folks that create content, you know, why not have a umbrella in the rainstorm and build a presence that at least you can rely on in case you get demonetized on YouTube, in case Netflix comes in and, you know, offers you the deal you can't refuse and you have no other option. So I think it's important and it's very accessible now. You can do this at pretty low cost. Whether you use Zyper, you know, you know, you DIY your own platform, end of the day, we're not talking about the millions of dollars that it would take in the past, like put a network on cable per cable uh, region, right? Like this is a lot more affordable. So we've seen customers like this just build these things for leverage in those negotiations. Wow. You just say, you know, hey, we have another option here. Yeah, there's alternatives now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it helps them enrich their exclusivity if they're going to do that. It helps them, I think, in cross-border content. We've done really well with customers that have licensing rights locked down, like maybe with a Hulu or a Netflix or a Crunchyroll or something like that in a certain region. But well, international is wide open. Wide open. Uh, interesting. And also the expats, right? Sure. The customers are, it's one customer in Sri Lanka. They have like a, like a, like a Sling TV of Sri Lanka and it's for expats though. 
So like all that content is kind of locked up in, in that region. But in the US, if you're Sri Lanka and you want to watch your local TV channel and you, oh, maybe buy it for your mom who's over here now, like that's great. And like that's wide open. So I think if you have meaningful content, if you have an audience of 100,000 people or more, more like 10 million or more, but hey, we're in that range. Like you should at least be thinking about this. Understand the landscape. Use social media to start with, you know? And no matter how big you are, like social media is a great place to start and play around with your own distribution. Try, there's play out partners out there that you can send live feeds to and they'll distribute for you. And then building your own thing is a little more work, but definitely worth looking into if you have meaningful content that yeah. you care about. It seems like with the exception of sports broadcast rights, the power now is in the hands of the distributors, not in the hands of the content creators. Yeah, I think that the, the price of content's gone up because of these big guys out here like paying for a lot of content. But yeah, the distributors have more and more power and the eyeballs are aggregating there. So, uh, and it's a real thing. I think that the folks that we've seen do really, really well, they have deals with these companies and they do their own thing too. And they're treating it like a real business and like their asset is their content. And, you know, in some regards, sometimes they're forced into a position where they have to find alternatives. Again, like YouTube demonetization is like a real thing. You know, I'm sure you know about, right? Facebook, like hard to make money on Facebook with content, unless you're doing something like this. Unless you're driving your audience somewhere to go pay or watch in a place where you can make money, you really- The it, CPMs it, just aren't there on Facebook today. Yeah, yep. and you can't, and like even Facebook Live is great for engagement and discovery, but how do you make money on Facebook Live? Mm -hmm. I wanna to talk to someone that's making money on it, that's not doing something on some other platform and using it to drive that traffic. Yeah. So, I think it's an exciting time for, for content creators and also probably a little scary. The ones that do well are the ones that really treat it like a real business. And uh, we have a actually a really helpful sheet, Google sheet that we distribute for free. It's called the SVOD business model sheet. So it's a inspired by one of our investors who's like a SaaS guru, software as a service guru, and wrote this SaaS unit economics model. His name is Christoph Jans, great guy. And so we took his SaaS model and we made like a video SaaS model basically, which is SVOD. So we put the spreadsheet out there. You can plug in like your audience size and how many subscribers and churn rate and what do you want to charge and basically tell you like how you how much money you can make and then you get a back end from there. Like, well, how, what are you going to invest? Like the money is not just going to come automatically. You have to distribute it and have infrastructure. You have to market it. You have to understand the data and acquire new content, all that kind of stuff. But there are tools out there like this that are free. You can use and test this thing out and see if it works for you. What does the future hold for Zype? Well, short term, we're, we're coming up with, we just announced actually today uh, a new analytics API. So one thing we hear from customers all the time is that we want more and more data. Like everyone wants data, right? So we have customers that rely solely on us for their video data. And we have customers that also ship that data into like data lakes and data warehouses and use tools like Tableau and lots of fancy stuff that we're never going to build to like model it and understand it. So we open up a new API that essentially exposes like all the data we have and that we store for you in Zype and allows you to pull it out whenever you want. And it's pretty cool. It has everything from all your consumer dynamics and who's watching, what they're watching, how long they're watching, all the streaming dynamics, like the sort of server side stuff, which is really important for deliverability and things like that. And then all the video dynamics, like what the content are people watching and what were the categories that content was in? What playlist was it in? What's the metadata that was related to that video? So I can understand it better and have our customers are building cool things on top of that. So we just announced that. I'm a big believer in native payments. Mobile's huge for us. I mean, mobile is like really driving a lot of video consumption. I mean, OT, like connected TVs and streaming sticks are awesome, but like the traffic is on web and, and mobile apps still. And we created a product called Marketplace Connect where you can do like sort of native Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Galaxy Pay, Roku Pay, all that kind of stuff but do in a way that's unified. So if you were to buy, let's say, a subscription to uh, one of our customers, 
you could buy it on your Apple phone and then watch it at home on your Roku and not have to pay again. And we synchronize everything. And then if your subscription cancels, you can't watch anymore. So we make sure we protect our customers' content. So those kind of products are cool. We have a lot of new stuff coming out around Discovery. We think Discovery is still like this kind of holy grail slash big challenge in OTT. I mean, who owns Discovery right now on video? It's like YouTube, right? And there still is no real discovery solution or discovery offering that solves it across all these apps and channels and streams. And we haven't had a lot of data. We know where things are kept. So we're working on some things there um, that I hope we'll announce in 2019. But that's, that's taken up a lot of our time internally in R&D is really thinking about our customers' biggest challenges and then one of the biggest challenges out there is discovery, discoverability of content. Very cool. We'll stay tuned for that. And what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the broader online video space, what would they be? That's a good question. So I think that we're going to see more companies, like if you looked at like Verizon, Go90, and you, you saw that kind of like closing the doors kind of thing. I think we're going to see that for some of these early entrants that were like really, really big and had really, really big budgets. But never could get adoption, right? So I, I still think we're going to see some of that, which I think it makes people think, oh, there's just going to be consolidation. There's only going to be a couple of winners. But again, we talked about it already. I don't think that's the case, but I still think we're going to see some of this shutting the doors kind of thing on some of these bigger endeavors. I think we're going to see, you know, a Facebook or a YouTube or an Amazon finally kind of figure out how to address payments inside content, whether it's like shoppable video or, you know, some sort of like Patreon-like system or something. I think we're going to see some, like we're starting to see some early stuff from those companies. And I think it's a problem that needs to be solved and they're in a good position to solve it. I think that's going to create a whole new set of challenges and opportunities and noise out there. But ultimately, I think we're in this mode where now it's like really about building eyeballs and building audience. And I think we're going to see this wave of core cutting is not slowing down. I think companies like Zype, we're gonna to continue to grow really, really fast because everyone wants to be on these platforms and there's, it's really complicated to get on them. And ultimately, I think it's gonna be, 2019 will be kind of be the year of kind of the end of the dominance of cable and sort of video consumption. I think they're still super relevant in the US at least for IP. Like where are we getting our internet from, right? It's still the cable company basically. And like, that's really interesting. And with net neutrality kind of being like, what's going on there? Like, who knows what kind of screws they try to turn? But I think we're going to see the nail being in the coffin in terms of like cable bundles in 2019. I think it'll be, you know, too much. There's no coming back at this point. One of the questions I ask uh, everyone who comes on the show, because there are, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the podcast. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know, what would you do? What's the white space out there? Uh, that's a great question. Well, I think, what's the white space out there? I love thinking about white space, you know, what, what sits between things. Right. And I probably for you as an entrepreneur, you, you know, I'm hundred percent focused on yeah. Palantir right now, but you can't shut off that part of your brain. You're constantly thinking about what are my customers' yeah. deepest challenges? Do you think, oh, this part of the world could be done just a little bit better? Or there's yeah. a solution here for this challenge that I experience. Yeah. I think automation, I think not necessarily just digital. I think we're going to like, we haven't yet had like Rosetta Robot yet. Right. So I think about automation a lot. When I think about not, so when I think about digital, I'm so consumed with Zype. It's very hard for me to like think about non-video related white space sure like um, we talked about some of that already but i think in general like automation and like the white space i think there's still a lot of white space automation there's a lot of hype there but this i you know i think that the expectations of the consumers that were are being born now and being born five ten years ago the level of automation that they're going to expect to kind of like survive the world it's kind of scary i think about like 
the survivability if like the power goes out or something like that of like the next generations i mean i was a boy scout i learned some stuff and i'm not sure how i would do if there was like a walking dead situation but like certainly now with like you know uberization of everything i think there's still a lot of white space there and like normal day-to-day things and so you know i think about like the home a lot and i think about you know putting the dishes away and washing the clothes and all kinds of stuff like no one's like we haven't gotten into that yet and i think this internet of things and i think you know, the robotic and the Arduinos of the world. And, you know, we were talking about this before, the consumerization of geekdom. Like, what are geeks playing with now? Robots. That's what I see. Like, my kids are in, like, some of these programs. They're playing with robots, man. They're doing, they're building Arduino things. And, like, how is that going to get consumerized? I think it's, like, someone's going to figure out how to, like, put the dishes away. And honestly, that's the kind of things that, like, when I think about non-digital things, that I'm, like, someone's going to solve that. Yeah. Yeah. And these appliances are decades old right now and haven't really had much innovation. And to your point, you know, earlier with your son with the iPad, the next generation expects everything to be a touchscreen. They expect to be able to interact with any form of device or appliance in the home, in in their school, right, anywhere in the world. World. So I think, you know, we are going to see a lot of innovation there. Yeah, yeah. And so where can people find out more about you, Ed, and more about Zype and the great so, stuff you're doing? Yeah, best place is Zype.com, Z-Y-P-E.com. And on Twitter, I'm Edlot, E-D-L-A. And LinkedIn, just like search my last name. There's not that many people with my last name the way it's spelled. It's L-A-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I, and you'll find me on there. I'm happy to talk to uh, any entrepreneurs out there. I love you know, thinking about these kind of problems, building businesses. And I had a lot of great mentors coming up. And I think that the kind of art and mentorship is like a really important thing that we all benefit from. And I appreciate you doing these kind of things and getting the word out to, to help others. Like maybe learn from, from other people, their mistakes and, and what they win, what they win with. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's all about. So thank you for sharing your story. It's great to hear, you know, your background, the, the lens at which you, you, know, you view the world and uh, some of the incredible things you're doing in the OTT space. So thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.